forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I don't feel satisfied unless I have dessert. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and too loud. Well, according to who? My own listening of the (laughs) podcast. (laughs) I listen back to this show and I'm like, for what, Gabby? Why are you screaming? (laughs) For who? Well, if you're wondering, what is this podcast? This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games and brutal honesty. But this month, we are also doing a mini season all about mental health 101. Each episode in May is going to have a specific mental health focused topic. And today is our inaugural episode. I'm so excited. Yay. Yeah. Welcome to eight jam packed episodes <laughs> full of mental health talk. And today, wow, we're really starting off on a, just a up upbeat foot because <laughs> uh, our topic is trauma and we're going to be talking to Dr. Shelly Jane all about trauma. She's a really amazing scientist and PTSD specialist. Uh, and so the conversation was really great, really emotional for me, actually. You started like just sort of laughing to yourself. Yeah, I was um, having... You were having your own journey through it. <laughs> <sighs> because I think like when I it's too close to home and I'm uncomfortable... Oh, is that what was happening? Yeah, I like was kind of like laughing to myself because it just got like a little uncomfortable. And I was trying I was like sort of trying to be like, don't start crying because that's weird. You could have cried. We cry on this podcast all the time. I know. But my reaction sometimes to like in scary movies, I'll start laughing. Like my Mm -hmm. reaction sometimes is to laugh. You know, as the bare naked lady said, I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. Also make jokes when I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> what did you feel like you learned some stuff about about trauma that you didn't know? Or I mean, you've gone to trauma therapy, haven't you? I have gone to trauma therapy. Um, I think it was just her talking about childhood and about mm-hmm. it's hard because like I know that things are different about me. I think the thing that was fucking me up during this conversation was the talk of how trauma changes your biology or the way that your brain looks or functions. And I had a little bit of a moment of mourning who I originally was like who I had a second of thinking, like, who would I have been if I hadn't been raised in an addict, alcoholic, chaotic home? Mm -hmm. Would I be a different person? Would I be more put together? Would I be less sad? Would I and it's no use because there's no going back. There's no, I mean, you maybe that person would even be worse. Who knows? Definitely less funny. I, I was going to cry because she was talking about the, the ways in which that changes you. And I was just sort of like felt, I felt a little bit like a science experiment or something. I was like, oh, so I'm, you know, I could have been different. Is that a weird thing to say? I think that all the time about getting OCD at four years old. Yeah. What Um, would you be like? But I also think that then we get into that idea of ranking people and that some people are inherently better than other people or hold more value or worth and that. I also don't believe that. And so then I'm like, I can't think both these things at the same time. (laughs) It's hard because with trauma, I see it in some ways where I feel that the word is really overused and then I'll see it in some situations where someone will be like, well, no, that that's not enough to be a trauma. And that person clearly is traumatized. Mm -hmm. It's hard to measure because it's so personal. And so then there will be people who I feel have real terrible things that they should work through, but they're like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And then there'll be other people who I think are held back by their misconception that something was like, you know, like super traumatic. And I, and they're like, well, because I'm traumatized, I'll never be able to change or I'll never be able to get better. I think it's two things. I think one, it's, it's acknowledging that, that a wide array of experiences can be traumatic and, and can count are valid. Yeah. And count and are valid. And on the other hand, knowing that like 
you are able to heal, you are able to mm-hmm. process, you are able to work through things. So even if you do have something horrific happen to you, that's not a life sentence on your right. internal world. And that right. hopefully with the right amount of support that that you can, you know, get to a place of either pre-level functioning or just a place where it's not interfering with your life every moment of every day. Yeah. Do you feel mad that you got strep throat to become OCD? No, it feels like a fool's errand to sort of go down that road. I think for me, the biggest thing is so weird to say, but like I've been doing a lot of talk about my true self. And Uh I think it's taken me a long time to be like, my true self is so opposite of what my OCD makes me seem like. Yeah. So that's been interesting because like, I'm not, I I know this will be hard for you to understand, (laughs) but I'm not, I'm not like an uptight, anxious person naturally. Like, and I can see that in like the way other people react to things. Like, I'm just not like, I'm not, I, I was not that worried about COVID throughout this entire event. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it's horrible and devastating, but in terms of like the amount of time I spent worrying about me getting it or like my loved ones getting it was on the low end compared Mm -hmm. to what I saw for a lot of other people. It's just, it's interesting. The, The more and more I get my symptoms of OCD under control, the more I'm able to see that like, I'm just not naturally the way that my OCD makes me appear to other people. I don't find you anxious. Thank you. At least like anymore. (laughs) If anything, too laid back. I like to lodge a complaint uh, about how laid back you've become. Uh, I have like a spiraling panic attack that Apple won't post our episodes. But that like I I don't care. Like I know I got that impression. I ask because I sometimes still feel like angry about why am I this way or like the ways Mm -hmm. that things have like shaken out. And also like, you know, then we talked to her a little bit about forgiveness. It sucks because my dad and I have talked, we've worked on it, went to family therapy, blah, blah, blah. And so there's like not anyone to be mad at, really. I mean, he's sober. He's not that guy anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. who am I supposed to direct this anger to? It's tough when like you're like, I've gotten closure. And then you're like, it didn't fix everything. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about like how important is it to forgive people? And I don't know. I don't I think it I think it depends. Like I I wonder like if I'm supposed to forgive my ex-fiance. And sometimes I'm like, I don't I don't think that I need to forgive him. But like, what (laughs) it was there something that you needed for closure to be able to move forward in future relationships? I needed to not blame myself. You didn't need him to participate in you doing that. In the end, closure did have to come from you. And the healing of the trauma had to come from you and had nothing to do with him. Yeah. And it's still not healed. I'm still upset about it all the time, every single day. Of course. But I'm just saying, like, I think sometimes people think that healing from trauma will has to come from another person. And it's something they have to get. And they have to get and I'm sorry. And they have to get some sort of like, call out or they have to get something. And my point that I was leading you to is that I think ultimately it has to come from you. Oh, yeah. I think I don't want an I'm sorry from him. That wouldn't serve me in any way. Good. I would love for him to be like, I've made the biggest mistake of my entire <laughs> life. I'm incredibly miserable without you. And I've I've ruined my only chance at happiness. That I would take. But then I'm sorry. I don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, anyway, (laughs) we've got a great episode for you guys. We're so excited for this mini season. We got a little off track there, but oh, man, we're getting right back on track. So stick around after the break. Welcome back to Just Between Us Mental Health 101. This week on the show, we have Shelly Jane, who is a physician, post-traumatic stress disorder specialist, and trauma scientist. Her debut nonfiction book, The Unspeakable Mind, is a textured portrait of PTSD, a widely misunderstood yet crushing condition that afflicts millions of Americans, um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners of this podcast. So thank you for being here. Should we say Dr. Jane? 
you can call me Shelly. I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah, Shelly's fine. Shelly's fine. Thank you for asking them. Thank you for asking them. <laughs> yeah, look, if someone becomes a doctor, I want to show the proper respect. <laughs> and a pet, pet peeve of mine when someone just goes straight in there and I'm like, do you know how many generations it took for me to become a doctor? Can you please just, you know, ask permission. I'm fine. Shelly's fine. But I love that you guys ask permission. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here because I think that we wanted to start off sort of talking about trauma because it is so universal. Um, whereas I think people think it's not like, I think people often have this idea that trauma only applies to a few specific circumstances and that's it. But mm-hmm. how would you describe trauma? What, what does it cover? Yeah. So the, you know, the obvious image that comes to mind when you think of trauma is like the combat veteran home from mm-hmm. war. Right. But the reality is, is like you say, trauma is everywhere. If you look at vulnerable people in our society, not just, uh, veterans or soldiers, uh, low income women youth who've been raised in inner city, high crime areas, um, uh, they're all at higher risk of having trauma-related conditions. And trauma covers everything from, you know, surviving a natural disaster to being robbed at gunpoint to intimate partner violence to family violence. And the reality is a massive chunk of Americans will at some point in their life survive a major trauma, you know, Mm -hmm. a life-threatening trauma. That is the reality if you go through your life without experiencing a major trauma, you are part of a very, very lucky, privileged minority of people. And then what's the difference between experiencing trauma and then developing PTSD? So a lot of times the two get conflated, that just because you've got gone through a trauma, you have PTSD. That is in fact not true. The data shows that the vast majority of humans, if they give it enough time, they will heal naturally from their traumatic experience, you know, the first days, you know, hours will be, you know, very troubling, but they'll heal naturally with the passage of time. Uh, A substantial minority will not, and they will go on to develop what we know as PTSD. And that's a psychological condition that requires the attention of a mental health professional. What are the symptoms of PTSD? So the, the, the classic kind of textbook symptoms you're probably familiar with is nightmares, you know, reoccurring, uh, uh, a replay of the trauma uh, during your sleep, uh, flashbacks, you know, these are involuntary reliving of the trauma. You know, it's not like you take a voluntary trip down memory lane where you think about that bad time. Flashbacks are involuntary and they're often triggered by things going on in your environment and really invade your day-to-day life. Being on edge, kind of easy to startle. That's another one, that kind Mm -hmm. of hypervigilance associated with PTSD. Lesser known, but equally devastating are like the mood states, Uh, shame, guilt, horror, depression, uh, anger right? The mood states of PTSD and also the emotional numbing, you know, which really can end up having people be alienated from their loved ones and really kind of muting and curbing their life in a much more insidious way. I think sometimes when people hear, oh, some people develop PTSD and some people don't, it sort of implies that like some people are quote unquote stronger and therefore they Mm -hmm. don't develop PTSD. How is that sort of a mis? guiding idea about it? Well, so it turns out that, you know, who develops PTSD and who does not after trauma, a lot of it is a very complex interplay between our biology, our brain biology, our environment, our genetics, and a massive chunk of what determines who develops PTSD is really determined by, um, you know, our genes, literally how our body mounts a response to trauma and how our brains mount a response to trauma. So yeah, like you said, this notion of, you know, stiff up a lip or, you know, you can power through, it's not as easy as that. You know, a lot of this may be out of our hands. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have to be a little bit more sensitive and compassionate about that. I'm in school right now for clinical psychology, and I just mm-hmm. finished a class all about trauma. And we talked a lot about like trauma informed care, you know, and what mm-hmm. does that look like? And what would it look like in a society if, if we were just more trauma informed in the way that we we dealt with kind of everything? Um, so I think that's, that is uh, an imperative for all of us. I mean, obviously, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We've got so much going on in terms of social injustice and racism in our society. And I think it's just been a wake-up call this year. You know, this past year has been a wake-up call to something that I've long believed in, 
that we should all become more trauma-informed in the way we navigate the world. And one tenant of being more trauma-informed is just accept the reality that the vast majority of people around you have probably had some kind of traumatic experience. So why don't we just assume that about mm-hmm. people? And then when we interact with them, let, let's, let's have that inform the way we interact with people, especially when it comes to if there is a dynamic where you may have power over the other individual. So, you know, as in healthcare, right? If you, when you become a psychologist, uh, you are going to have power, whether or not it feels like it, <laughs> you have power in that relationship because the p- person is coming to you when they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a teacher in a school, you have power over students, you know, uh, anybody, if you're an employer, you have power over your employees. And whenever there is that differential in the dynamic, let's be more trauma informed. Let's just understand that people are coming to scenarios with their history, you know, and if we go about being more open-minded, having more cultural humility, having more compassion, trying to be more kind, that can go a long way in helping traumatized people be, be, be their best self in any given scenario. Is that just like empathy or like extending the complexity of your own life to other people? Just to break it down a little bit, I I think one thing it starts off, I mean, I know it sounds very simple, but I really am a big proponent of, of just to start off just by listening, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, rather than having an approach of what is wrong with you, how about, well, what happened to you? Mm -hmm. You know, curious listening because I really feel we've become awful at listening you know yeah. uh, not interrupting people letting them express themselves letting them utilize their voice and then through that having an understanding of what their situation might be you know um, being curious about what their situation might be you know and and I'm a big fan of not necessarily putting myself in their shoes but walking in their shoes as them, yeah. <laughs> which is a little, is a little bit more tricky. It's a little yeah. bit more tricky, you know, but you know, I don't want to overcomplicate things. I do think there's simple things we can all do. I do think we're an increasingly distracted society. You know, um, we've gotten worse at listening, like literally over the last 10 years, people are just multitasking like on steroids. And I think a lot of people are feeling isolated and lonely because we have forgotten just how to listen to people and to be there in real time, face to face, you know, um, we're not doing that enough. And I think that's having consequences for people who are suffering. I can see a lot of people tend to minimize their trauma or Mm -hmm. even be hesitant to, to call what they're experiencing trauma, because I think Mm -hmm. there's this notion of like, well, I wasn't in a a war. Um, Mm -hmm. But what would you say? Do you think it's beneficial for people to just be more open to naming what's going on with them? Uh, you know, I think we've got to be careful because I do think that word trauma does get banded around a little too casually. You yeah. know, I think what's key is you as the person who has had that experience, you should name it what you want. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think you should feel coerced or um, obliged to give it a name that you don't feel comfortable with. You know, if you see it as a trauma, well, you see it as a trauma, you know, um, you might not see it that way for a myriad of reasons. And it might not necessarily be i mean if you want to if you want to know the textbook definition of trauma when it comes to ptsd there is a very very you know particular definition it's typically a life-threatening event you know something that, that that poses a threat to your physical integrity you know so a lot of kind of traumas with a little t might not meet that standard a couple of things that i'd say sometimes i think trauma with a little t gets conflated with adversity you know, mm-hmm. so say as a child, you might have experienced a lot of adversity, but, but there's a massive literature on childhood adversity and how that in, impacts your psychological and um, physical well-being. So adversity in itself is a whole issue itself. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, cumulative traumas, right? So you might not have had one big trauma with a big T, but what if you had a bunch of little traumas, you know, or, or, or little kind of traumatic losses? cumulatively, we know they all add up. Mm-hmm. And at some point for individuals, you know, it becomes the event that the straw that broke the camel's back. You right. know, it's, it's very common to meet people who have had multiple traumas in their lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and let's not affect the cumulative impact. Can you talk a little bit about the ACE study, what that is and, yeah. and what it's kind of 
led how it's sort of shaped how we understand humanity <laughs> so a studies is a, bo- a body of uh, amazing work i think it was done in the early 1990s and a stands for adverse childhood experiences and in essence you know it's sponsored by the cdc so anybody if you google ace and cdc you'll be able to actually see the original studies but in essence it took a really good long longitudinal look at how experiencing adversity in childhood and by adversity i'm talking about you know neglect verbal abuse maybe being raised in a home where there was addiction and so um your emotional needs weren't met those kind of ad- adversity you know maybe not trauma with a big t but but adversity and the impact that had on these children when they grew into adulthood the impact it had on their uh, wellness you know in terms of physical illnesses things like obesity or cancer or even hiv and also their psychological wellness so things like depression addiction and there's no doubt about it you know childhood adversity is one of the biggest public health issues we have i mean there's such a robust correlation between experiencing adversity in childhood and subsequent mental and physical problems that you know we we really have this call to action that we cannot tolerate uh you know uh, extreme adversity for children who are not you know resilient by nature it turns out <laughs> uh, actually childhood is an exquisitely vulnerable time and if children don't get what they need there are serious repercussions throughout their lifetime and so what what is that call to action how how do we step in and, and try to help so so i think definitely in terms of kind of research and public health policy and again how we school how we deliver healthcare we have to be informed by that body of data i mean it used to be like i've been a doctor for 20 years now and and it used to be when i was coming up you know when i was in medical school and when i was coming up through the early years of my practice it used to be you know things like childhood adversity or trauma you know m- most doctors didn't want anything to do with that that wasn't their problem you know that was a quote unquote social problem mm-hmm. you know or something for social workers to deal with but the reality is is it is a medical issue because it impacts people's physical and psychological well-being uh it impacts how they how they receive medical care whether they have access to medical care how effective the medical care is so i think just integrating that into the way we think about healthcare the way we think about schooling the way we think about public policy right um i think that is what the call to action is and i got to tell you i am very reassured i think there's been a lot of positive progress in that direction in the last 5 10 years or so Is it also include, you know, listening to children when they say what's going on with them? I feel like a lot of young people that I've spoken to, our fan base is sort of diverse, but like let's say high school age and younger, they feel as though nobody heard them or nobody mm-hmm. was listening to them when they said things were traumatic or when they were going through adversity. How do we better like listen to the kids? Yeah, you know, it, it it's tough because perception is reality you know when it comes to getting support or feeling heard so it may not always be that no one cared but for whatever reason the child felt that they weren't heard you know so i think us becoming more skilled in our language and our behavior to meet kids where they're at you know in a way that makes sense to them uh which historically you know we we're, we're relatively early in the stages of doing that and a lot of it also depends on the kid's age right developmentally there's so much heterogeneity amongst kids you know you, you talk to a 5 year old different to how you talk to a 10 year old different to how you talk to a 15 year old so i think being aware and all of us educating ourselves about the di- different developmental stages that kids are on in and and how uh, and how best to approach them or listen to them or be there for them or even just creating spaces where they can talk and be heard i mean this kind of speaks to my point that i do feel we're kind of horrendously distracted these days and sometimes i just don't think those spaces are there the way they may have been you know 10 15 years ago and if someone's listening to this and they're like okay i don't necessarily meet ptsd you know requirements mm-hmm. but i do feel like i have some unprocessed trauma mm-hmm. you know how how would that play out in their life like isn't is like what symptoms would that 
how would that show up if someone's not quite PTSD, but Mm -hmm. has unprocessed trauma? So it might be a lot of the symptoms that we talked about, but maybe subdued, you know, they mm-hmm. might not get the kind of intensity and the severity of the symptoms that are totally disabling to people who have got full-blown PTSD. You know, it might just be more subdued and maybe not as kind of in your face and arresting, but that doesn't mean it's not impacting their life, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they might find that they're not able to show up to interpersonal relationships the way they want to show up. They might find that, you know, the creativity is stunted or they can't find direction in their life or they're kind of prone to, to mood swings and, uh, and other kind of features. So it might all just be more subdued. Um, how else might it show up? You know, there is, there is a condition called partial PTSD where exactly that, they don't meet the full bone criteria. And we're, we're starting to know more and more about partial PTSD and it still does leave a very, quite an Im- imprint on people's lives. So I think you should just look at the areas of your life. This is the thing about PTSD. It impacts the way you love, the way you work, the way you create. So it can show up just anywhere in your life. And if there's areas of your life where you feel like you're just not growing the way you want to grow or you're totally dissatisfied, I just think just having that curiosity about whether or not there's a connection between Mm -hmm. your own trauma history and what's manifesting in your life. And sometimes there might not be, but I think just having a curiosity about it and, and, and exploring that. There's a lot of um, differing opinions on repressed memory. Mm-hmm. And the effect that that could have. How do you feel about that? I read, I, I got into repressed memory as a thing for a while. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. there's like so many different takes on it. And yeah. some people are like, that is not a thing. And some people yeah. are like, it is absolutely a thing. <laughs> you know, there's no, yeah. there seems yeah. to be no middle ground on repressed yeah, memories. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, as you know, because you're an expert, you know, you've done the deep dive into it. It just got very controversial there for a while because there was this whole thing about whether memories were implanted, you know. So here's my take on it. Um, I think w- what I learned from the repressed memory debate was it is vital that when you are talking to a trauma survivor, it's vital that they stand in their own truth and they talk when they're ready you cannot get into this issue where you are uh coercing them or uh pushing them to explore things that they don't want to explore or you are maybe even projecting your own stuff onto them you know um and this, I mean, you know, we could talk about this for a whole separate session, but it's a really fine line as a mental health professional. It's a really, really fine line. And I think that's a take home message for me. If someone tells me they've never experienced a trauma, even though they might be behaving like someone who's a full blown PTSD, it's not, not my job to knock that down. Hmm. You know, it's not my job to say, are you sure? Oh, you must have been traumatized. That's not my job. If, if they say they haven't, they haven't. And maybe one day, a year from now, five years from now, seven years from now, they might say, oh, actually, I was. And it's my job to wait for that, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so, so, so in my <laughs> Not mind, to tell them that Satan may have sacrificed them on an altar yeah, in the 80s. And they just, they just <laughs> forgot about it and they suppressed it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's dangerous territory, you know, and, and I do think history has shown that. And, and I think the take, the, the stance we kind of take now as mental health professionals is more that, you know, we are going to let the trauma narrative play out organically with the person whose story is in charge of that story. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Let's say when someone tells you something very bad that happened and mm-hmm. then they say, no, it wasn't a trauma. Do you, is, as a doctor, do you yeah. just go, you, similarly, you say, okay, like whatever you're saying. Yeah. I don't feel a desperate need to label things. Mm-hmm. So what I would focus on, I mean, usually when people come to me, it's not necessarily because they, they're saying, oh, I lived through this major trauma. Oftentimes it's things like, all right, my wife's had enough. And she said, if I don't come see you, we're getting a divorce, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's, I can't keep a job. You know, I keep on getting into arguments with management. I can't keep a job. So that's where I start. You got to meet people where they're at. That's what we start with. Okay, so what's going on here? Break down the emotions they're having, the behaviors they're having. What are the cognitions associated with that? So, So I think that's key. I don't think we should get caught up in nomenclature uh, you just got to meet people where they're at. 
Can we talk a little bit about the different interventions that are used for trauma therapy and, and how they're different than maybe what you would experience like in talk therapy? So, so trauma-focused psychotherapy is a key to the effective treatment of PTSD. And it's literally taking the trauma and putting it front and center of the talk therapy. Because essentially what's happened with someone with PTSD, every time they think or even sniff a reminder of that trauma, their whole body goes into fight or flight mode. And that's what causes the chaos. So part of the trauma-focused psychotherapy is helping the trauma survivor with the help of a very skilled mental health professional to expose themselves to the trauma in ways where they have more control over their bodily reactions. Right. So I always tell people, you know, it's like you want to be in the front uh, front seat of your, uh, of driving your life. Right now, the trauma is in the front seat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you want to be back in the front seat. So trauma focused psychotherapies, things like EMDR, mm -hmm. CPT, prolonged exposure, those are the kind of three big ones that have got great data to support their effectiveness. That would be the first choice that I would recommend. You know, if I had a loved one who had PTSD, I would want them to get one of those three therapies. That would be my number one choice. What are those three? Can you explain them? Uh, so, so again, it's, it's like uh, so the, uh, the, the EMDR, the CPT, the prolonged exposure, at their core, there's a lot of similarity between the three. At their core is this exposure piece where the trauma is replayed over and over again with the help of a skilled mental health professional so that there's almost like a desensitization process that's going on, you know? And you can start, I'll give you an example with something in your head. So for example, in the room with the therapist, let's say someone has a trauma history and they can't be around crowds, you know? So the example I always use is if you were in the military and there was a bomb explosion in a crowded marketplace and ever since then you just can't be around crowds. So what the, what the therapist might help the trauma survivor do is imagine in your head you're taking a trip to a big box retail store, you know, <laughs> imagine it in your head, walk yourself through it. Tell me what happens. You're parking your car, you're walking to the store. What are you feeling? What's going on with your heart rate? What's going on with your breathing? What are you thinking in your head? So in session, the, the, the therapist might do that with the trauma survivor. And then at some point when the trauma survivor is ready, the therapist might give them a homework exercise, which is, okay, I want you to go to a big busy store you know, maybe on a Wednesday, maybe not on a weekend, but I want you to actually go. And the whole idea is, is they're kind of literally working through the trauma by getting more in control of their bodily reactions and desensitizing themselves to that whole process. You know, so, so that's kind of example that is core to some of these psychotherapies, the exposure element. Another, another thing that, uh, that gets done is a lot of psychoeducation. You know, people just do not understand the way trauma impacts your physiology and your psychology. So a lot of education and then learning a lot of coping skills and strategies, just simple things like learning how to breathe, learning relaxation exercises, uh, you know, mindful technique, mindfulness techniques. Those are all part and parcel of the, of the therapy. And sometimes someone might come in for trauma therapy, but they might not even be capable of, of doing that yet, right? Sometimes you sort of yes. need to maybe do some DBT or emotional regulation yep. with them just so they can even get to the place where they're stable Absolutely. enough to try. Yeah. And the disclaimer I'll say is, you know, we met very often meet patients who are like, I don't want to talk about the trauma mm -hmm. because obviously that's the last thing they want to talk about, right? Because <laughs> it causes so much distress. And if they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it. That is fine. And then what we tend to do is non-trauma focused psychotherapy approaches like stare or act where we just focus on the consequences of the trauma in their life. So like you say, the emotional regulation or the interpersonal stuff, we just focus on that. But you never want to force or coerce someone to talk about something they're not ready to talk about. That is not good practice. Because then it can, it can be harmful for them in therapy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. When they're yeah. ready. I mean, they might need a little nudging <laughs> yeah. because, you know, they don't want to talk about it. It's not mm. pleasant. I mean, definitely no pain, no gain when it comes to psychotherapy, you know, but, but no forcing, no coercing. Uh, that will be detrimental, I think. How important, let's say the trauma was caused by someone such as like a sexual assault or a parent mm -hmm. or um, how important is forgiveness? And what if you can't 
talk to the person anymore, like a parent who passed or mm-hmm. um, you don't want to d- talk to your rapist or, you know, yeah. like how, do, how, how does forgiveness factor in? So, you know, one thing I say a lot over and over again in my own practice with patients is we don't have much control over, over other people's mm-hmm. behavior and actions. Really, all we have control over is our own. And even though that's frustrating, in a way, I think that's also empowering because, you know, you don't need the parent to be alive then, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or you don't need to go face to face, confront someone to be able to change your state of how you feel and believe about an event, you know? I do think, you know, when someone has full-blown PTSD, I do think formal treatment and going into recovery is part and parcel of the forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know? You know, I think when you're consumed with anger or when you feel depressed, it, that takes a real toll on all of your life. And it's very hard for you to perform the way you want to perform in your life and show up the way you want to show up when your life is riddled with PTSD. And I think that contributes to a lot of bitterness and a lot of Mm -hmm. ongoing anger. So until that cycle is broken, I think it's hard for people to forgive, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think focusing on their own healing so that they get to a position of feeling peace, then they can look to having that kind of generosity to think about forgiveness and compassion. And can we talk about police violence and and the trauma of that? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's often been this idea, at least historically, that you have to experience trauma personally for it to count. But what do you think about police violence and all of these videos that are circulating all of the time and people having to watch murder on Twitter? And Mm -hmm. mm, what are your thoughts on that and what that's doing to, to our country and specifically, you know, black Americans? I I feel like when I see that, whenever I see, um, you know, like recent media coverage about uh, racial injustice, to me, I think of historical trauma Mm -hmm. and I think of group trauma. And one thing we know quite clearly now is that, you know, generational trauma is a thing, you know, we inherit the trauma of our ancestors, not only psychologically and socially, you know, in the way that it impacts them and the way they raise us and, and their kind of behaviors. But also there's some early evidence to suggest that epigenetic mechanisms are at play too. What's that? So for example, uh, this notion that let's say if a woman experiences a trauma, she's impacted on a physiological level on a way that alters, you know, impacts her eggs. Uh, if a man experiences uh, trauma, uh, it, it impacts his sperm. So any subsequent children inherit these altered genetic profiles. They, they inherit the altered neuroanatomy and the neurobiology. And even though these children themselves may not have been experienced, experienced a trauma themselves, in the event that they do experience a trauma, they are responded with, responding with that inherited vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so kind of early on in the science of epigenetics, but there is data to support this concept of generational trauma on a biological level. And that's what I think about when I see everything that's going on and I, and I see the distress and the pain of, of the response, you know, across society, even though, like you say, you know, individuals themselves may not have been directly impacted because this is a historical group trauma mm-hmm. that goes back centuries mm-hmm. and has not necessarily, has not been fully addressed. And what has been missing? I mean, you know, we might have had some progress made in terms of civil rights or, you know, mm-hmm. um, legal protections or political protections, what I think has been sorely missing throughout the centuries has been a very clear pathway for the psychological rehabilitation of trauma survivors so that they don't continue the cycle endlessly Mm -hmm. throughout the generations. I think we're getting to that point now where we understand that PTSD is a thing, you know, and we want people to get help for it and treatment for it. But this is very recent. I mean, that's what's been missing, I think, the psychological rehabilitation. So those historical wounds, you know, I kind of call them soul wounds. They go back so deep. Um, They need to be healed, you know, Mm -hmm. before, uh, you know, you can expect, uh, you know, more peaceful resolution to these kind of ongoing injustices. I mean, how can they? Like, I think truly it goes back to slavery for mm-hmm. black people. And then mm-hmm. I think a lot about, I mean, Allison and I are both Jewish. I think the Holocaust has affected mm-hmm. our people intensely, mm-hmm. especially if you have 
grandparents or great grandparents who were in it, who were huge swaths of family who were just murdered. Um, and so like, how do you start to go back with someone, you know, I personally wasn't in the Holocaust, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, someone who's watching this police brutality wasn't in slavery, but how do you start to like heal from that? Um, so, you know, I know it sounds really simple, but I think the fact that we're even having this conversation is huge. You know, I'm really a big believer in the name it's you can tame it philosophy. The reality is, is I think 20 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You mm -hmm. know, we wouldn't be talking about generational trauma. You know, we would just be talking about that specific event in time. You know, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be talking and, you know, uh, and I do think there was this kind of overarching societal philosophy. Well, okay, you guys experienced that, but now you're in America, so you're all good now, you know, um, and that's in the past and we don't talk about the past and we move forward. You know, there was this kind of stoicism that was more pervasive culturally or was more expected. I do think just having these conversations, just giving it a name, just being curious. Oh, okay. Is this why I'm this way? Because when my mom used to do this or when my grandfather used to do this, this is how he would react. Have I on some level internalized that or what was the deeper meaning behind that? So I think having curiosity, having the conversations and integrating that into our story moving forward, you know, um, I think these are all things that are different now in the conversations that we're having now that I, I honestly think just 10, 20 years ago, no one was open. It was just fringe people who were talking that way. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, no one was open to talking uh, that way in the past. So, so I, I think just starting the conversation, just talking about it and increasing awareness. And then the trauma-informed stuff that we're talking about. You know, if all of us committed to be more trauma-informed in the way we lived our life, one thing we'd stop doing is re-traumatizing other people. Yeah. We'd all, we'd all stop doing that. I mean, wouldn't that be a great start <sighs> if we just stopped re-traumatizing other people? <laughs> and so, you know, the trauma-informed approaches, are, I think, are huge as well. What's the difference between, between PTSD and, and complex PTSD? And, and why is it a little trickier to deal with, with complex PTSD? Uh, so I think complex PTSD is kind of like a niche kind of diagnosis. Um, it's not officially accepted um, oh. in the, by, you know, kind of the big American Psychiatric Association. You know, it's not an official diagnosis, if you like, um, but there's a whole backstory to that. But um, it is a construct which I have found immensely valuable as a clinician. It was a term that was introduced by Dr. Judith Herman, who's this Harvard psychiatrist. And she introduced this as a syndrome to describe survivors of prolonged abuse, you know? So when we think of PTSD, like I say, a lot of it arose from watching soldiers who had survived wars, whether it was World War I, World War II, the Civil War, Vietnam. And typically the story there was you had someone who was going about their life, then bam, something really bad happened to them. And then they kind of went back to their regular life. So it's kind of like a singular massively traumatic event. And what Dr. Herman was describing was, well, what do you do with people whose whole life has been abused? Mm -hmm. You know, let's say mm -hmm. if they were sexually abused as children, neglected, um, emotionally abused, and, and that is all they have known. Or what do you do with survivors of intimate partner violence who have lived 20, 30 years in this kind of state of, of, of quote unquote captivity? The symptoms of the PTSD look very different in survivors of prolonged trauma. There's a lot more deformations of kind of personality because guess what? These people have had to learn to adapt to their circumstances. They have had to learn to survive next to the perpetrator, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so um, I think a lot of treatments that work for complex PTSD really have to address the interpersonal elements and the personality elements. And then a lot of times the emotional dysregulation that comes with that. Uh, and that's what makes it a little bit more complicated. Because you're not just doing that exposure to one incident because there's yeah. there's so many things that have happened. Where, so where do you start? Right. And it's so entrenched. And definitely in the case of childhood abuse, you're experiencing abuse before you even got to form a proper personality. So where is your before and after, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it can be incredibly challenging. Yeah. What about right now with collective trauma um, that everyone is going through with the pandemic? I saw some news footage from March, 2020, and I was like, wanted to throw up. 
it reminded me of when the pandemic was starting and I was yeah. and I w- remembered the fear of from that. And I was yeah. like, oh, my I just felt awful seeing the news footage. Yeah. And I wondered yeah. if as like a 60 year old, I'm, my kid is going to be studying the pandemic and I'm going to be yeah. like, don't bring that near me, you know? <laughs> yeah, Um I, I do think, I mean, obviously I was a PTSD specialist before this pandemic, but having lived through it with, you know, forever a year, I'm really concerned. I feel like there are going to be massive swaths of people who have got major trauma related to the pandemic. You know, when I think of all the people who survived COVID, you know, I mean, obviously there's the awful numbers of people who died, but there are massive chunks of people who had a near-death experience, but they survived it. When I think of them... When I think of people who lost loved ones under sudden and horrific circumstances, never got to have a proper burial, never got to go through mm-hmm. all those healing rituals. When I think of frontline healthcare professionals, the people working in the ERs, the ICUs, the janitors cleaning the hallways, the the the, the nursing aides, everybody. That, uh, and then when I also think of essential workers, right? The people who had to keep the grocery stores open, had to deliver our packages throughout the quarantine. Uh, I just think you have millions of people who are living with and I bet they haven't even begun to process the trauma yet because we're not done with it yet right Mm -hmm. we're not through it yet um so uh, I think it's going to be fascinating how it plays out now we are at this moment in history where we know a lot about PTSD PTSD has become part of our modern vernacular you know in the post 9-11 era so maybe we'll go about it in a better way maybe you won't be you know, the grandma who <laughs> locked it away and didn't talk about it yeah. and spent her whole life, you know, maybe you'll be curious, maybe you'll recognize where you're in trouble and get help so that you can tell this integrated narrative to your grandchildren in a way that is more, you know, healed as opposed to something that is has cast this longitudinal shadow, you know, over your life. So it's going to play it out in the weeks and months and years, but I'm very worried in terms of of, of post-traumatic, you know, after the pandemic, I'm, I'm very concerned. You know, I, I think we haven't even begun to see the psychological consequences. And for people who think, well, no one I love died or, and, and considering what happened, what I went through wasn't that bad. Like, what would you say to that? Is it still possible that they're going to have symptoms just by going through this collective experience? You know, there were many traumas. And again, like I said, this trauma with the big T, there's trauma with the little T. There's a lot of, you know, losses, a lot of loss of rites of passage, a lot of loss of um, uh, losing, you know, kind of conventional access to community. I, I think it just depends. It's hard for me to imagine people getting out of this totally unscathed. Right. You know? um, and if you did, you're a very, very, very lucky person. <laughs> then you might want to think back, uh, think about giving back in other ways then, you know, Um uh, but but I don't know, as it, as it marches on, don't you feel, you know, more and more people who've been impacted by this? I do. I just yeah. feel like, you know, um, it, it's starting to really take its toll in mm-hmm. so many ways on so many people. Yeah, we've talked a bit about the rise in suicide um, yep. amongst young people, which is yep. really, really troubling to me. Yep. yep, the downstream consequences. And I should add as well, when whenever there's an economic recession or whenever there's high levels of unemployment, there is always an increase in family violence. So that is another, you know, population I didn't mention before that I worry about, you know, like the downstream consequences of the economic consequences of the pandemic. Before we move on to the next segment, uh, can we talk a little bit about trauma narrative and what that means and why it might be important to sort of like create your trauma narrative in in processing everything? Um, So I think on a cursory level, trauma narrative is just, your trauma story, right? So, okay, this happened to me, you know, and this was the consequences of that. So in a way, it could just be a casual story that you're a trauma survivor and this is your story. When I talk about it as a mental health professional, what we're talking about is the trauma narrative in the context of of the therapy. Mm -hmm. And this is more than just someone just telling their story. This is going over the story again and again and again and looking at the kind of stuck points or what the triggers are. And a lot of time, people who have full-blown PTSD, their trauma narrative is actually quite disjointed, you know? 
Uh, and a lot of the work of therapy is reworking that narrative so that it is integrated into their life story. You know, so depending on the context, I think that word trauma narrative has a bit of a, a different story, but, but it is key to the process of healing. And cause a lot of times there's miscon like you, your trauma narrative and it might, you might take the blame, right? Like yes. the, the story you're telling yourself is that you deserved this, that you asked for this, that, you know, yeah. and so maybe working with a, a professional would be Re rewriting that story in a, in yeah, a way because you might not even be aware that that's what you're thinking there's a lot of cognitive distortions mm -hmm. associated with ptsd oh only if i'd only got there 10 minutes earlier i would have been mm -hmm. able to save his life you know uh, and you don't even know you're thinking those thoughts until you go through your trauma narrative and then like you say there's some Socratic questioning that the therapist can do. Well, you really think that? You really think that if you got there five minutes earlier, you're for sure you could have saved that person's life? Do you know what I mean? And then it's only when that kind of is fed back to the trauma survivor that they can think, oh, I'm like living with these thoughts that probably aren't true, but they're kind of driving the way I feel about everything. So yeah, absolutely. The cognitive distortions, the self-blame, the over-generalizing, there's so many... Uh, distortions that go on around trauma. And I think unpacking all of that is a key part of the therapy. And so maybe if, if, if a way to look at, if you need to, to do some work processing your trauma, sort of look at, okay, what do I tell myself about my trauma? And then mm -hmm. sort of see like, am I blaming myself? You know, mm -hmm. like, am I, how, what story do I tell myself? And that might cue you into, oh, maybe this isn't, maybe I'm not processing this in the healthiest way. Maybe I do need to see a professional yeah. to sort of help me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I do think it is hard for you to do that as an individual by yourself. I mean, I can't emphasize enough. I mean, this is really complicated stuff. So getting help from a suitably qualified mental health professional is such a key part. You know, I say this a lot to patients. I'm like, you're a really smart, accomplished person. If you could have figured this out by yourself, you would have. Guess what? You need help. And yeah. so that's okay, you know, because this is complicated stuff. Your kitchen sink explodes. You call a plumber. You don't <laughs> go, I can handle this on my own. How dare yeah, I be so absolutely. weak? Absolutely. You know, like even, even when it comes to physical health, you know, if you're not getting the results that you want at the gym, you get a trainer, you know, yeah. and, and people don't think twice about it. Well, then why do we expect ourselves to unravel all this by ourselves, <laughs> right. you know, uh, yeah, I, 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 there is still that, you know, I think part of it is stigma, you know, whatever it is, I always tell people, you know, why did you think you could figure this out by yourself? You know? <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. This was so wonderful. Um, we're going to come back after a quick break and do a new segment called three questions. So stick around. Welcome back to Just Between Us, Mental Health 101. Uh, now we are doing a brand new segment called Three Questions. And so, Shelly, ahead of time, we sort of sent you these three questions. The first one is, what is something you wish you had known about managing your own mental health when you were younger? I think I had an inkling to this all the time when I was growing up, but I don't think it was validated externally. Mm -hmm. But I wish I'd known how your social reality can impact your biology, you know? Oh, what do you mean? So like, for example, when it comes to PTSD, there has historically been a massive resistance to society accepting how if you go through something really traumatic, that can impact your brain and your body, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I know to us because, you know, we're having a 21st century conversation and we're a lot more savvy about PTSD. I know that sounds strange, but you need to understand with the history of PTSD, for decades, society just did not want to accept that. Right. Right. And if somebody went through something bad, they were like, okay, well, let's take you out of that bad situation and you're going to be okay. It's not as simple as that. That bad situation, if it's impacted your biology and, and your physiological functioning and the way your brain is functioning, unless you address that, you're going to take that into whatever experience you go into. So, so I think how social reality can impact your biology, and I'm saying this as a brown girl who grew up in England, you know, during the 70s and 80s, at what was a really pretty racist time, like over in your face racism. And I don't think there was a lot of societal empathy for the impact of that. 
Right. You know, and the long lasting impact of that. And and I think as a kid, I, I, I knew that there was. So knowing that, that your social reality, you know, impacts you on every level from the cellular to the psychological to the emotional. And, you know, that's what it is. I think part of it is, is because those wounds are invisible because people can't see them. Mm-hmm. They don't want to acknowledge them or they don't want to believe them. But. As we now know, having lived through a massive global pandemic, things you can't see can still kill you, you know? So um, I think it's the invisible nature of psychological wounds that puts people, you know, gets people off guard. And I think people don't understand the biology, right? So like, like, what do you mean it changes my biology? Because it's kind of a hard concept to grasp, especially because the brain is so misunderstood like even today like we don't we don't really understand how the brain works yes right right and you're right we're still in our infancy of understanding the brain but we probably do know a few things about trauma in the brain you know we know that it probably has some impact on our amygdala you know Mm -hmm. the the, the way we respond to fear um uh or, or the way we manifest anger you know uh, the conventional wisdom right now is that people with PTSD, uh, their amygdala is kind of hyperactive, you know, right. quick to respond. And then the, the frontal lobe is less active, you know, so that part of your brain that is involved in judgment and execution, that doesn't kick in when it should, you know. Sorry, I'm laughing at myself. It's fine. You just described me. <laughs> <laughs> Hyperactive amygdala, right? Hyperactive right? amygdala, amygdala and no frontal lobe. Tell no, me more. Right. Well, the combination, <laughs> there you go. Combination. You know, you're imagining danger when it doesn't exist. And the part of you that, that wants to put yourself in check doesn't. And it just goes into action, you know? So, um, you know, I, I feel uh, it can be really empowering for people to hear that that's that explains why they're behaving the way they're behaving, right? You know, there's, there's, something to, there's something to be said for connecting the dots for people. And I do think that's what we're in the process of doing, just literally connecting those dots between social trauma and an individual's biology. And that's that psychoeducation element of like, oh, okay, yes. there's not just something inherently wrong with me. I'm not just inherently weak or overly sensitive or blah, yeah. blah, blah. It's like, yeah. oh no, your biology yeah. literally changed. Yeah. yeah, right. And speaking to your point, we, we are in that infancy of understanding the brain. So I don't want to reduce it down to terms that, you know, 10 years from now will prove not to be true. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that's okay too. You know, the brain is, to me, the brain is the most exquisite, beautiful, complicated, intricately complex thing. And it's okay. It might take us a few centuries to figure it out, but, but I do think we're onto something, you Definitely. know? And we should be comfort with, comforted that we don't know everything, but at least we know something. Yeah. Okay. So our, our second of our three questions is, what is something you're glad that you now know about mental health that you, you know, implement into your daily life? Um, so I'm, I'm glad that, uh, again, there used to be this narrative that, oh, something awful happened to that person and they have issues and the narrative kind of stopped there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I feel happy about is that you know you don't have to suffer your whole life yes (laughs) um you know I do feel previous generations kind of wore that as a badge of honor Mm -hmm. um and the reality is is the story does not have to end at oh you have issues with your whole you know social support network walking on eggshells around you for decades these illnesses, you know, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's PTSD, they are treatable, right? They are manageable. You can be in recovery from these conditions. We should all be really hopeful. A massive amount of work has been done by some really smart, intelligent people over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and we should reap the rewards of that, you know? You know, you you don't have to suffer. Uh, I, I think that's what I'm glad to know, that we should have hope. Yeah, I love that. Because I, you know, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Gabby and I both have, uh, I have OCD and, and Gabby has bipolar. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. those are, are sort of lifelong conditions. But I also think mm-hmm. that they're extremely treatable in a lot of ways, too. And and like, whereas I, I will never not have OCD, I right. my yeah. OCD has become so much more manageable. Excellent. 
And yeah. I've seen a lot of changes with Gabby getting a, <laughs> a better handle on her bipolar. And, you know, and I think <laughs> that this idea of like, oh, once you get that diagnosis, that's it. Yeah. Where I think a lot of times getting that diagnosis can be helpful because then you know what are the most effective treatments so you can yes. make it manageable. Yep. Absolutely. It's good yeah. that we're in a place where more people are talking because I do I do feel like with my grandmother and mom and everything, it was like, uh, oh, dad's got, you know, problems, but we don't talk about it. We don't mm-hmm. yeah. he's not going to go to therapy like, yeah. you know, we're not we're not therapy people or whatever. And like yeah. now I it's a little bit less um, of a stigma, which is. hopefully we'll have less people walking around, like you said, inflicting trauma on others. (laughs) Right, right. Because it's not like it went away just because they're not therapy people. And the other thing, just I guess the feminist in me also wants to make this point. I do feel for generations, there was a lot of women who were making up, you know, they, they were kind of keeping social networks running and alive and families running alive. They were doing all the work and kind of compensating for people with mental illness. And that's not the case anymore in that women have been given other opportunities. They have careers, they have jobs. And I think it's forced us to look as a society at what, you know, what are we getting by not addressing this head on? Like you say, if someone was having a heart attack in your house, you would call Mm-hmm. you know, 911 and get their help. There wouldn't be any, um, a- any dispute about that, but unfortunately somebody could be having a full blown mental breakdown. And, uh, I don't know if it's stigma. I don't know if it's lack of education or knowledge, but a lot of times the family will enable all of that, right. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of keep the status quo. And, um, I think a lot of people have paid a big price for that. I think there's this misconception that mental health problems are your fault. So like there's this mm-hmm. fear around like if we admit that that someone in our family is struggling, it's because mm-hmm. something we did and we're, you know, and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas if someone has a heart attack, you're not going to like blame yourself for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I think that's that psychoeducation element of like it's not your fault. It's mm-hmm. There's a lot of things at play. There's biological, like mm-hmm. psychosocial, yeah. you know, yeah. there's so many elements yeah. that lead to these things that we don't right. need to feel like, oh, well, admitting we have a problem means we also have to take responsibility for it. Right. I, I, I totally agree. And, and even though, like you say, social factors do play a, play a part, right? But but getting rid of this terminology that it's a fault, like why do we have mm-hmm. to play the blame game, you know? Right. Um, and that, and just having more of a growth mindset towards it, like, if the way that I am navigating a relationship with a significant other is contributing or enabling some of their symptoms of a psychological condition, why don't I try and grow? Why don't I try and change or address that or learn about it? You know? Um, so yeah, I mean, like I say, I do feel it's getting better, you know, uh, and we are making progress in the right direction, but there is a long way to go. Um, and that sort of leads us to our, our final question, which is, what is something that you're still trying to learn or implement into your own mental health care? I would love to have less stress in my yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> good, um, luck, good luck to us all. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think I've gotten better over the last decade. I've definitely got better at self-care in terms of, you know, paying attention to my sleep and my diet and my exercise and making time for meditation. Like in the last decade, I've gotten consistently better at that. But for some reason, I'm always so overbooked. <laughs> and, and I don't know why, how I get myself into these situations. And I don't think there's a day that goes by when I'm like, okay, why am I so stressed? Why am I so stressed? And I, I haven't cracked that one yet. I don't know what it is, but, but I do know I need to do something about it. Cause whenever I'm stressed, I'm not present, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not in the moment. I don't think I suck the joy out of life the way I should. And it does diminish my life. So, so yeah, I, I'm trying, I mean, I'd welcome some tips, but the stress, it just, you know, it, if one thing goes, another thing comes and, and I just feel too busy all the time. And, and I would really love to do that. Do you have trouble saying no to things? So that's really interesting because I do think I, I feel like I don't have trouble saying no. I think my dilemma is more, I get asked to do really cool things 
And so I don't want to say no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm ever, I, I, I think I'm doing less and less of that where I'm forced to do stuff I don't really want to do, but I don't think I can. I, there's less of that going on in my life. I, I think I'm at the stage of life where I can say no and not yeah. be worried that I'm not, you know, not going to have a job or whatever. But I get asked to do really cool stuff. So like, for example, this podcast, you know, today is my day off. Um, but, no, 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 but, 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 but I'm so glad I did it, you know, because I get to meet amazing women doing really good work. We had a really great conversation. I loved your questions. But, you know, half an hour before... Right. You're like, like, why did I agree to this? Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hope you don't find that rude. No, that's Um, so helpful because I think there's this idea that like, you know, because you're a psychiatrist, it's like you have it all figured out, but all of this stuff is hard. (laughs) I know. know. And and I think sometimes there's this feeling of like, well, why why can't I get this under control? Why am I so stressed? And it's like, people who study this are still very stressed. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yes. It's a thing. Yeah, no, it's complicated. I'm a work in progress. I hope I'm getting there. Um, But yeah, that has been one nut that's been very hard to crack. Like, why do I always have so many things on my calendar? But it's okay. We'll get there. I'm sure the pandemic hasn't helped because everything is so complicated these days. I'll get there. We got to schedule you a a nice vacation. I know, right? (laughs) You want to go to the spa? That sounds pretty good. It's right? safe to go to the spa. But then here's the, the thing. Though. Even even with my anxiety, it could be like 30 minutes before the most relaxing thing. And I'd be like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> exactly. But isn't that a sign you're really stressed when even fun stuff feels stressful, mm-hmm. right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, you know? So, so yeah, I, I, I do feel, I do have this theory that a lot of it is because the way we manage our worlds has changed so drastically in the last 10 years. I do think there is a structural component going on that I haven't quite figured out. But um, but yeah, that is my big thing. I need to have less stress in my life. <laughs> well, thank you for doing the show. Thank you for doing the show. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm really glad I did it. Honestly, I say that hand on heart. It was the right choice. And uh, I feel better for having this conversation with you guys. And I think you're doing awesome work and I applaud your efforts. Um, but yeah, no, zero regrets. And I knew I'd have no regrets, but yeah. But then always half an hour before I'm like, yeah. I'm <laughs> no, sure we all felt that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. On a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm supposed yeah. to, this is supposed to be my vacation. My parents are here, but I was like, I got to record the podcast, oh, you know? So look at you. Wow. We should yeah. all release ourselves into, into Friday. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This Usually we so would wonderful. ask our guests to yeah. Rate the show at the end, but you rated it. So <laughs> you there honestly you did it naturally. Yeah. So thank ten you so much. Ten. Yeah, 10 out of 10. Yeah. Oh. Well, you guys are doing awesome. It was really fun. And I loved your questions. I felt like they were just super intelligent and probing. And I loved that. And I really hope it's helpful to your listeners. Oh, it thank will be. you. I it know that be. it will be. Thank, thank you so you. much. Awesome. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. You can also follow at JBU Podcast on Instagram and Allison at at Emotional Support Lady and at Allison Raskin and me at at Gabby Road and at BWM Pod, my new Instagram for the Bad With Money podcast. Bye! Forever! <laughs> <laughs>